the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be with you this afternoon. Glad you're listening. By the way, I've been under the weather the last uh, week. I guess it's been about a solid week. Um, some sinus cold sort of thing, allergy. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, <laughs> I had such coughing fits that it was difficult to talk for any length of time, but I'm much better now, although not quite 100%, but glad to be back in studio. Today, we're going to talk with Gregory Wrightstone. He's the author of Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. This is really a great book. It's about 123 pages long. It's very readable. It's intended to clarify um, the difference between a computer model and what's actually happening on the ground and why there are skeptics uh, related to the catastrophic uh, result of man-made impact on the environment. And so we're going to talk with uh, Gregory Wrightstone, who's a geologist in in it for about 35 years. He'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. So we're looking forward to that. We're going to try to catch up on some of the day's uh, news and events as well for the last um, last period of time. So we're looking Uh, forward to that. And yes, I did watch the Royal Wedding. I had a sleepless night and actually watched it live. I thought it was, uh, thought it was pretty sweet. I I really enjoyed it. I uh, appreciated the uh, U.S. elements of it. And in that um, Meghan Markle included a lot of Americans and her African-American heritage played into it as well. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you have the opportunity to hear the homily that was presented by apparently the head of the Episcopal Church, that's definitely worth uh, worth listening to, as well as some of the music that was presented there. So there, I've said it. I watched The Royal Wedding. Some of the developing news stories today. The Justice Department has asked its watchdog to look into alleged wrongdoing in the FBI's investigation of Russia interference in the 2016 election after the president's orders uh, ordered rather a review into whether agents infiltrated his campaign. And what we're looking at here is the possibility that one administration used intelligence assets to spy on the next uh, or the potential next administration, which is a pretty serious thing, if in fact that's the case. Also, special counsel Robert Mueller told the Trump's legal team that he would wrap up his Russian investigation by the 1st of September if he's able to interview the president by mid-July, according to Rudy Giuliani. And the big question, of course, is whether or not he'll have the opportunity to interview the president. His legal team has been urging him not to do that. We'll see what happens. Tony Podesta, um, older brother of former Hillary Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta, has found himself under scrutiny for dealings with Russia after a series of tweets by President Trump. And in a commencement address to graduating Yale students, Hillary Clinton admits she's still not over her loss to Trump in the 2016 presidential election. 
Some things really go without saying. I think we pretty much all know that by now. But again, in the lead story, the Justice Department has asked its watchdog to look into any alleged impropriety or political motivation in the FBI's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. The Department of Justice on Sunday night announced hours after President Trump ordered a review looking into whether federal agents infiltrated or surveilled his campaign for political purposes. Now, at this point, given the New York Times article and other things that have since come out, there's no question that there was uh, someone in the campaign that was uh, placed there by intelligence assets. Beyond that, what we uh, need to find out is what the president is asking for. Uh, She also released a response from Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. If anyone did infiltrate or surveil participants in the president's campaign for inappropriate purposes, we need to know about it and take appropriate action. Well, the president late last week started accusing the Justice Department of trying to frame him by planting a spy in his campaign, an allegation his own lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, said might not be true. Well, FBI informants uh, met with three Trump advisors during the campaign, at least according to one report. And the FBI plan in the Trump campaign was a Cambridge professor. That much was ha- also, uh, has also been revealed. We'll find out what the, the truth is somewhere floating in all of it. Well, special counsel Robert Mueller has uh, told President Trump's legal team that he should be able to wrap up the Russia investigation by the 1st of September if he's able to interview the president by mid-July. Rudy Giuliani speaking on Fox News Sunday said Giuliani said he and Mueller spoke about an end date to the investigation approximately two weeks ago. During that conversation, Giuliani, who now represents the president, told Mueller that any interview of Trump by the special counsel would be contingent on knowing when the probe would wrap up. Giuliani added that he wants Mueller's investigation wrapped up by the 1st of September so that it doesn't affect Republican chances in November's midterm elections. He said the date refers only to aspects of the investigation related to Trump as opposed to court cases involving former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, former campaign manager Paul Manafort and others. Well, the president has warned extended uh, the extension of the Russia probe will put some hurt on Republicans during the midterms. And that's his choice of words. Some hurt. Former FBI officials say that Trump has absolute uh, uh, was absolutely right uh, to fire Comey. He should uh, not fire Mueller, however. Well, um, Tony Podesta, the older brother of Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta and co-founder of the one-time lobbying powerhouse, the Podesta Group, was thrust back into the political spotlight after President Trump pointedly questioned why he had been so charged Uh, had not been charged and arrested. Trump focused on Podesta in one of a series of tweets on Sunday attacking special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into alleged collusion. In October, reports emerged that Mueller was investigating the Podesta group over its lobbying work on behalf of a nonprofit group called the European Center for a Modern Ukraine. According to the special counsel's indictment of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and associate Rick Gates, the Brussels-based ECMU functioned as a mouthpiece for Victor uh, Yanukovych, Ukraine's pro-Russia uh, president between 2010 and 2014. And early in her address uh, to graduating Yale students at Saturday's uh, class day, Hillary Clinton reached behind the lectern, pulled out a traditional Russian uh, Yushanka hat and held it aloft. I mean, if you can't beat them, join them. Now, was she thinking of um, uh, alleged collusion in allowing the Russians to get uranium um, uh, 
I'm not sure that's what she meant, but that's what I thought of when I saw her with the Russian hat. She said to the audience as they laughed and applauded, uh, I mean, you can't, if you can't beat them, join them. The Russian hat gag, a nod to student tradition of wearing extravagant headgear during class day, set the tone for a wide-ranging speech in which Clinton alternately joked, about her loss to Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election and warned Yale's class of 2018 that we are living through a full-fledged crisis in our democracy. Now, by that, did she mean because I lost the election, we're facing a full-fledged crisis to our democracy, which, of course, we are not. But that was a quote. Clinton admitted that she still thinks about her defeat by Trump. Duh. Uh, No, I'm not over it, she said. I still think about the 2016 election. I still regret the mistakes I made. I still think, though, that understanding what happened in such a weird and wild election in American history will help us defend our democracy in the future, even though it's actually a constitutional republic. On this day in 1932, Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean as she lands in Northern Ireland about 15 hours after leaving Newfoundland. In 1927, on this day, Charles Lindbergh landed his Spirit of St. Louis um, uh, monoplane near Paris, completing the first solo airplane flight across the Atlantic Ocean in 33 and a half hours. And 1881, on this day, Clara Barton founded the American Red Cross. Just saying. Well, Trump, as we mentioned earlier, said it's uh, time to probe the FBI's collusion probe in the wake of recent reports alleging that Barack Obama's FBI had a secret informant within Donald Trump's 2016 election campaign. He's called for a new investigation. And on Sunday, he stated, I hereby demand and will do so officially tomorrow that the Department of Justice look into whether or not the FBI Department of Justice infiltrated or surveilled the Trump campaign for political purposes. And if any such demands or requests were made by people within the Obama administration, end quote. Well, seemingly recognizing the seriousness of his charge, Justice Department Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein quickly responded by requesting that the Inspector General Michael Horowitz expand his current probe of the FBI Department of Justice handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation to include the agency's surveillance of the Trump campaign. Rosenstein re- uh, released the following statement, and I quote, if any one did infiltrate or surveil participants in the uh, presidential campaign for inappropriate purposes. We need to know about it and take appropriate action. It remains to be seen, however, if his actions fully meet the president's demands. The obvious question here is whether the Department of Justice can be trusted to objectively investigate itself. Meanwhile, more information has surfaced, narrowing the description of the alleged FBI informant within the Trump campaign. The New York Times published the following three key details. The informant is an American academic who teaches in Britain. The informant sent a curious message to Trump campaign volunteer George Papadopoulos, offering to pay him $3,000 to write a research paper on a disputed gas field in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. The informant also offered a paid trip to London so they could meet. The informant sent Papadopoulos an email in September of 2016, writing, I understand that uh, this is rather sudden, but thought uh, that given your expertise, it might be of interest to you. End quote. Well, the Daily Caller claims to have identified the individual in question as uh, Stephen Halper, a retired professor who had interactions with both Carter Page and George Papadopoulos. While not naming names, the Washington Post reporting seems to corroborate both the callers and Times stories. And a source for the Daily uh, Wire notes that the Department of Justice and FBI appear to be leaking information to the Post and the Times rather than giving it to Congress, all for the purpose of spinning an embarrassing story. Well, the irony here is that the The reason the agencies had given Congress for refusing requested documents and information is concern over putting a source at risk. 
In short, the trickle of information keeps those stories alive for better or for worse. And we'll continue to follow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 24 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a highly anticipated report from the Justice Department's internal watchdog reported, uh, uh, reportedly is expected to hit FBI leaders for moving too slowly to review the batch of Hillary Clinton emails discovered toward the end of the 2016 presidential campaign. Aren't you looking forward to the time when we can just move on past the 2016 election? I think we're a little far from that now, but the day will come. Anyway, offering a glimpse at the contents of this closely held in, uh, Inspector General review, the Associated Press cited people familiar with the findings who should not be talking about them. And they're reporting on Monday that the investigation would criticize the Bureau for its handling of that incident. It's just one piece of the comprehensive report that Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz has uh, compiled looking into the FBI and the DOJ's conduct during the Hillary Clinton email investigation. Well, the handling of that late campaign email discovery, though, has um, long been a key issue for officials on both sides of the aisle. Clinton has repeatedly blasted the uh, FBI director, James Comey, for notifying Congress that he was revisiting the email probe less than two weeks before the election, claiming that announcement hurt her campaign in the final leg of the uh, uh, of the campaign. But Republicans also want to know why the FBA, FBI rather waited weeks to act on those emails, which were discovered on former Representative Anthony Weiner's laptop. Some officials in the FBI, like then Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, knew as early as September of 2016 of the emails, but the Bureau didn't obtain a warrant to review them until the following month. So that's another bombshell report that's expected at some point in the next um, few days. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said on uh, Sunday that the U.S. and China, the world's two biggest economies, if they're to be believed, we'll talk about that in a moment, have reached a tentative deal to cut trade deficits that includes the U.S. putting China tariffs on hold, an agreement that potentially averts an economic standoff that would have uh, global impact. We've made very meaningful progress, he said, and we agreed on a framework. He was speaking on Fox News Sunday after weekend talks in Washington with Chinese officials about cutting the U.S. trade deficit with China, which last year reached $337 billion. We're putting the trade war on hold. Well, Mnuchin, who was the country's lead negotiator in the talks, said the tariffs will be put on hold while the countries try to execute um, the framework agreement. He also said the tentative agreement includes China buying substantially more U.S. goods to cut the deficit, structural changes to the Chinese economy to help make the U.S. more competitive in that market, and protections on technology, which have been very important to the president. Trump, since his 2016 campaign, has argued that the United States has to renegotiate trade agreements with China and other countries to become more competitive in the global economy. And he's complained about China violating international property laws. On Friday, he called the existing U.S.-China agreement bad for our country and said, we're changing it all around. On Saturday, the White House said it... um, in what it called a joint statement that the U.S. and China had agreed to take steps to reduce that deficit. The statement essentially highlighted the same points Mnuchin mentioned on Sunday and that the, the next steps in, uh, include the United States sending a, a team to China to work out the details. 
By the way, China is uh, considering ending the limits it set on the number of children a family can have. People familiar with the matter uh, told Bloomberg China's population of 1.4 billion is aging rapidly with the number of births falling by 3.5 percent to 17 point um, uh, uh, 2.3 million last year, Reuters reported, despite the country's decision in late 2015 to relax the country's controversial one-child policy uh, and allow couples to have a second child. Well, the communist country's state council or cabinet, they've commissioned research on ending the country's birth limits on a nationwide basis. A decision could be made in the last quarter of this year or in 2019. And we're talking about the forced abortions that women who uh, wanted to have a family and their husbands presumably um, would no longer be the case. Well, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said today that Washington will impose the strongest sanctions in history on Iran if the regime does not comply with a list of U.S. demands intended to bolster nuclear nonproliferation verification measures and rein in the rogue state support for terror groups and involvement in foreign proxy wars. Speaking at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, Pompeo laid out a diplomatic roadmap for future relations with Iran that includes the re-implementation of the sanctions lifted under the 2015 agreement which the U.S. withdrew from earlier this month, as well as the imposition of additional sanctions intended to bring the regime back to the negotiating table. Well, the former CIA director laid out a comprehensive list of requirements that Iran has to comply with to avoid the painful sanctions, including the declaration of all nuclear materials to the International Atomic Agency or Energy Association, the allowance of unqualified IAEA access to all nuclear sites, the conclusion of missile development and the release of all American hostages. He suggested that the Trump administration was prepared to lift the sanctions, reestablish a commercial relationship and allow Iran access to advance technology in exchange for good behavior. Well, Trump withdrew, as you know, from the Iran deal earlier this month, citing the lack of adequate compliance verification, as well as Iran's increasingly aggressive regional influence campaign as evidence of the Obama administration's failure to secure a favorable deal. Strategically, the Obama administration... Uh, Pompeo said during the speech, made a bet that the deal would spur Iran to stop its rogue state actions and conform to international norms. That bet was a loser with massive repercussions for all people living in the Middle East. We will continue to work with our allies to counter the regime's destabilizing activities in the region, block their financing of terror, and address Iran's proliferation of missiles and other advanced weapons that threaten peace and stability He added, we will also ensure Iran has no possible path to a nuclear weapon ever. Meanwhile, um, Iran is uh, trying to prevent Europeans from spinning off as well and suggests that some European officials were in fact bribed into accepting the Iran deal. Now, how reliable is that? Well, after President Trump uh, decision uh, after his decision last Tuesday to pull out of uh, Barack Obama's dubious Iran nuclear deal, which was followed by threats to reimpose economic sanctions against the number one state sponsor of terrorism. Iran's foreign affairs minister issued his own threat via a bombshell revelation. H.J. Ansari Zarif uh, stated, and I quote, if Europeans stop trading with Iran and don't put pressure on the U.S., then we will reveal which Western politicians and how much money they had received during nuclear negotiations to make hashtag Iran deal happen, 
end quote. Well, now the Iranians aren't exactly the most trustworthy bunch. That's a huge part of the problem with the deal. But Zarif's uh, charge that several European leaders were essentially bribed into accepting the Iran deal is entirely plausible. Recall that after Obama uh, completed the Iran deal back in 2015, Fox News commentator Charles Krauthammer wondered, the most astonishing thing about the deal is that in return, they, the Iranians, are not closing a single nuclear facility. Their entire nuclear infrastructure is intact. They're going to have the entire infrastructure in place, either for a breakout after the agreement expires or when they have enough sanctions relief and they want to uh, cheat and to break out on their own, end quote. Well, Krauthammer's observation was accurate. So what exactly did the rest of the world get for the Iran deal? Why did so many European leaders sign on to such a bad deal? The answer is twofold. As far as reining in a rogue regime's efforts to gain nuclear weapons, the West got nothing. As for opportunities for lucrative business deals, that was most definitely in the cards, as Zarif uh, may have uh, just alluded. And this revelation might also explain why European leaders are scrambling to salvage the deal even now. French finance minister Bruno uh, Le Maire argued, do we want to be vassals who obey decisions taken by the United States while clinging to the hem of their trousers? Or do we want to say we have our own economic interests and that we will continue to do trade with Iran? Well, memo to Le Maire, U.S. GDP ranks first in the world and accounts for 23 percent of the world's GDP. Iran is 29th, accounting for less than 0.5 percent. What was that about economic interests again? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Gregory Wrightstone, author of Inconvenient Facts, The Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Gregory Wrightstone, the book Inconvenient Facts, the Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. Well, Daniel Sugarman, who writes uh, for the JC, uh, wrote this about his coverage um, condemning Israel uh, during demonstrations last week. I received a lot of praise for my piece from people I admire greatly, as well as from a great many unexpected sources, including from within the Jewish community. Later, he writes, what really affected me the most was yesterday when a Hamas operative went on television and claimed that of the 62 people killed in the last two days, 50 were Hamas operatives. Islamic Jihad claimed three more, meaning that over 80 percent of the people who were killed while trying to breach the border were members of terrorist organizations whose direct aim is to bring death and suffering into Israel. And I opened my eyes and saw what I had done. I had fallen into the trap I had always been convinced I would not fall into. I had condemned Israel for defending itself. Uh, Sort of a bold a retraction of an earlier report and also from a spokesman for the Israel defense forces on Hamas. Their modest op- uh, modus operandi is simple lie. Their lies support the stated goal of Hamas, the delegitimization and destruction of Israel. Well, Venezuela, they held a national election on Sunday and were shocked, amazed to find out that President Nicolas Maduro remains in office. Who knew who could have guessed Food shortages, uh, parents leaving their children at orphanages in order to be fed, military, a monthly pay at about $10, no medicine, no toilet paper, inflation estimated to be about 653% with currency that is virtually worthless, electrical blackouts. And to this list of um, 
uh, a rigged election to keep a corrupt tyrant in power. And you have the poster child of socialism's failure, the country of Venezuela. And it's particularly sad because it could have been so different. Well, why should Americans care about the implosion of this South American nation? The population of 30 million is smaller than that of California. Well, it's simple because there are those in this country uh, whose policies would reflect uh, or at least are championed here in this country. Since 1999, two million Venezuelans have fled. Crime is soaring as the masses suffer overwhelming poverty. The two people who have protections and provisions are those in power. Venezuela remains rich in one particular resource, oil, but even that's in serious trouble. In December of 2017, America was importing 475,165 barrels of crude oil daily from Venezuela's state-run uh, oil company PDVSA that had fallen from almost 800,000 bar- barrels daily just one year earlier. Venezuela is a nation with a capacity for vast wealth, but corruption metastasized and its government structure is killing this nation and its people. Well, how does a nation holding the world's largest volume of oil reserves, as ranked in 2017 by OPEC, and the U.S. Energy Information Administration have such an impoverished people and unstable government. Well, when that question is uh, posed to uh, Americans on the left, to um, the answer is mismanagement by its leaders. But these reporters are purposefully glossing over the real reason. Venezuela is on the verge of collapse due to the disease of collectivism. The Washington Post apologetically defends a socialist system plagued by mismanagement. But we can see the proof of failure in the very same piece. It catalogs 7,778 blackouts in three months, the surge of malaria, diphtheria, measles, tuberculosis, and rampant inflation that leaves a dozen eggs costing 480,000 bolivars, the equivalent of almost one week's salary. Hugo Chavez was elected in 1998 and established his reign. He altered the nation's constitution, dissolving the democratically elected Congress and the nation's Supreme Court, calling for a revolution of popular democracy and equitable distribution of revenues. Chavez consolidated power to himself and to the state rather than resorting to the voice of the nation's citizens as advertised. Not only did the dictator eliminate term limits and take control of all aspects of the government and the military, he terminated property rights in his self-described revolutionary socialism. Private companies were expropriated by the corrupt Congress in the name of public interest. Chavez declared his uh, commitment to the elimination of capitalism and defined his view of poverty, or rather property rights, as the ability for individuals to have their personal belongings but not control of the means of production. Oh, and don't miss the law implemented in June of 2012 that allowed only government officials to own weapons and ammunition. Well, how does this relate to the current dictator, Nicolas Maduro? Well, he was a bus driver. He became a union leader and Chavez loyalist who was elected to the puppet Congress and ultimately appointed foreign minister and vice president. In his own words, Maduro has declared to the suffering people of Venezuela, we're all children of Chavez. Well, given the uh, dreadful... Uh, uh, Yesterday's uh, turnout of about 17 percent in contrast to over 60 percent in past years, the 21 million registered voters of Venezuela clearly understand that their votes don't really count. The system has been criminally and corruptly rigged with a system of government that destroys their ability not just to achieve but to survive. Well, keep that in mind when you hear the laughable statements from uh, parrots of failed policy like comedian John Oliver on his HBO news show saying last week uh, tonight, Oliver, like more serious um, counterparts, claims that the reason we're watching our South American neighbors languish is because the greatness of socialism just needs a new manager. 
No, it's not epic mismanagement, killing political foes or holding more political prisoners than China or Cuba. It's socialist thugs. Well, American uh, Democrats created the nanny state birthed by Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. He knew that replacing the family and the dignity of work and wealth would corral votes to those who promised the goods. After the fundamental transformation of America failed miserably with eight years of the previous administration, now Democrats are peddling the goodness of Bernie Sanders, guaranteed jobs, a basic income without work, free college, free health care, and the list goes on and on. But make no mistake, socialism fails. Socialism sucks the life out of its citizens and empowers corrupt and squalor, corruption rather, and squalor. Socialism has never worked, and it should be rooted out in the United States. Don't be fooled or lulled into inaction. It's an election year. Beat back the policies that fail and defend liberty, if we can, if we can keep it. Well, the sprawling and subsidy-packed farm bill failed in the House on Friday in a dramatic defeat for GOP leaders who faced an uprising from conservatives over inaction on immigration. The farm bill was uh, voted down 213 to 198. It had been uh, hanging in the balance as the conservative House Freedom Caucus threatened to uh, withhold support within an uh, agreement on an immigration bill, or rather without agree- an agreement on the immigration bill vote. Well, the GOP leadership, including House Speaker Paul Ryan, the primary uh, figure, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, and Whip Stephen Scalise, uh, were seen in intense discussions with the conservative lawmakers in the minutes before the vote, but to no avail. Before the Farm Bill failed, the Freedom Caucus had called for a vote on a conservative bill that would boost border security and support the construction of a wall, among other things. Uh, GOP leaders had offered for the House to consider the measure in June in exchange for support for the farm package, a deal conservatives rejected. Not uh, entirely believing that June would produce uh, another vote. A spokesman for Freedom Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows uh, said Friday that he opposed the bill because not enough progress has been made toward a solution on immigration. The spokesman added that Meadows looks forward to continuing discussions in the coming days. We want to make sure that we get the right things done on immigration. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio also said, well, leadership has been uh, hearing grief in stereo from both conservatives and moderates who are insisting the House address protections for DACA, uh, DACA recipients, young illegal immigrants who came to the country as children. President Trump stripped those protections, calling on Congress to act. But the matter has been held up in court and some moderate Republicans are trying to light a fire under House leadership to deal with the issue sooner rather than later. Well, all this came as Congress worked to engineer a passable farm bill, a twice a decade effort that often turns into an epic balancing act to address the wishes of farm state Republicans and Democrats supporting food stamps. On top of the uh, complicating factor of immigration fight, the House on Thursday dealt with an effort to uh, crack down on the government's controversial sugar subsidy program. In a uh, decisive 278-137 vote, the House rejected a bid from Representative uh, Virginia Fox, a Republican out of North Carolina, to significantly weaken the program and invite more foreign competition. GOP leaders are also pushing to tighten work and job training requirements for food stamps as part of the bill. That means Republicans had to pass the measure with minimal uh, defections, and it put pressure on Republicans who have criticized costly farm subsidies in the past. Well, the situation has, in turn, given the House Freedom Caucus leverage to make their immigration demands. Before the vote, Meadows said that the time is now to deal with immigration, and that the farm bill doesn't face a pressing deadline. He said farmers want us to deal with immigration and the farm bill both. 
Well, Meadows and other Freedom Caucus members met with House leaders into the evening on Thursday to try to resolve the dispute, but clearly it was not resolved. And we saw uh, precisely what has happened. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, attacks on the Electoral College and one new member of that uh, effort. I believe there are 11 states currently involved. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk with Gregory Wrightstone, author of Inconvenient Facts, the Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. The book is published by Silver Crown. Well, Connecticut became the latest state to break with the Constitution last week by joining the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. The state Senate approved the Democrat and rather Democrat Governor Daniel Malloy vowed to sign a bill that would pledge the state's electoral votes to the national popular vote winner in presidential elections. Well, the national popular vote interstate compact is a scheme developed by opponents of the Electoral College, generally those who would rather see the presidents of the United States elected by popular vote than by the Electoral College system the founders established in the Constitution. Well, the Electoral College was designed to make the president's election a truly national contest. It forces candidates, for example, to recognize all regions and not ignore small states and rural areas in favor of larger states and major metropolitan areas. The process, Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist 68, affords a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an imminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Talents for low intrigue and the little uh, arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man uh, to the first honors in the single state, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union or of so considerable a portion of it as would be necessary to make him a successful candidate for the distinguished office of president of the United States, end quote. Well, Democrats aren't happy with the Electoral College. Hillary Clinton, as we are um, repeatedly reminded, won the national popular vote by roughly three million votes. If it weren't for the Electoral College and men and women and um, James Comey and Russia and on and on and on. She would be president right now. Therefore, in the eyes of Democrats, the Electoral College is no longer relevant. But consider this. Over 20 percent of Clinton's 65.8 million votes came from California and New York alone. Take those two deep um, blue states out of contention and she would have lost the popular vote by three million. Clinton didn't campaign hard enough in the Rust Belt, losing states she mistakenly assumed would stay in her column. She ignored these states in favor of big blue state buckets like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and other major metropolitan areas. In fact, the 2016 election is proof positive that we do need the Electoral College, and that is, uh, it is still relevant. It's typical uh, behavior to assume that because they, uh, they can't seem to win something, then the game must be rigged. This is why uh, so many come up with the national popular vote scheme in the first place, recognizing that their most loyal voters tended to be in metropolitan areas and that these areas were growing more Americans live in cities than in rural areas. For example, Democrats pined for a popular vote strategy that would secure them a lasting national presence, as it has in several states with large metropolitan areas. California, New York are perfect examples. The National Popular Vote Compact began in 2007. Laws were introduced in states that would pledge that states electoral college votes to the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of the outcome of that state's vote. In other words, if a given a state 
um, votes for a Republican candidate, but a Democrat wins the national popular vote, then that state's electors must pledge to vote for the Democrat. The compact goes into effect when the popular number of states on board reaches 270 electoral votes, the winning number to become president. With the recent addition of Connecticut, there are now 11 states plus the District of Columbia in the compact. They're all deep blue states, of course, and they hold a total of 172 electoral college votes. Given that these states are unlikely to actually vote Republican any time in the foreseeable future, this compact is currently almost meaningless. However, according to the compact's website, there are 12 more states in which the bill has passed at least one chamber, totaling 96 electoral votes, which would bring the compact total to a very relevant 268. It's ironic from a historic perspective that Connecticut joined the compact. It was Connecticut's Robert, or rather Roger Sherman, who argued against a national popular vote for president uh, during the Constitutional Convention in 1787. He, like many founding fathers, feared the tyranny of the majority, noting that the people at large uh, will generally vote for some man in their own state, and the larger states will have the best chance for the appointment. Today, Democrats believe that just the opposite is taking place, that smaller states and rural populations are running the country. Barack Obama complained after the 2016 election that the Electoral College works against Democrats, and Clinton has begun calling for the abolition of the Electoral College since Al Gore's loss in 2000. Now, it's much more difficult to amend the Constitution than it is to enter into a pact, uh, as is currently the case. The case uh, can be made that the Electoral College does favor Republicans, but that may be because the GOP knows how to run a presidential election better than Democrats from a technical standpoint, if not always politically. It could also be uh, just be the ebb and flow of presidential politics. Coalitions come and go. States change from blue to red and from blue and from red to blue. Rather, it's. um the nature of politics and it's how our federal republic works. Well, the national popular vote Interstate compact is not a solution to this issue because there is no problem. If Democrats want to win presidential elections, then they should front a candidate who wants to be president of all the people instead of just those she doesn't consider deplorable. But that effort is moving forward at pace. Uh, In other news, Russia's um, ongoing conflicts with Ukraine has flared up once again. It's fallen off the headlines, but it's still... Uh, having an impact. This time, however, it wasn't uh, another Russian artillery or rocket barrage in eastern Ukraine's embattled uh, Donbass region. Rather, the latest escalation was evidenced by completion of a bridge across the Kerch Strait connecting the Crimean Peninsula with mainland Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin, true to form, got behind the wheel of a big rig truck May 15th and led a convoy across the newly opened Kerch Strait Bridge. This bridge is not just a bridge, he said. This is a tool for economic and political pressure on Ukraine. Ukrainian infrastructure minister um, uh, said during a May 16th cabinet meeting, Ukrainian agencies reported, Russia invaded and seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. As a result, the United States and the European Union levied economic sanctions on Moscow. Made very little difference. Additional um, separate sanctions were put on Russia for its ongoing proxy war in eastern Ukraine, as well as other acts of Russian aggression, such as meddling in Western elections and a nerve agent assassination attempt against a former Russian spy on British soil. It's made very little impact up to this point. Moscow touted the new bridge as proof that Russian rule over Crimea is permanent. In a flurry of official statements on the 15th, the U.S., EU and Ukraine roundly condemned the Kerch Strait Bridge, calling it a further violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. For the Kremlin, the new bridge represents the physical reunification of Crimea and Russia, 
senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, said the fact that the project succeeded despite Western sanctions targeting those involved in its construction demonstrates the limit of current Western capabilities to alter the situation there, uh, she said, speaking to the Daily Signal. 59 minutes after 4 o'clock, that is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. And then later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk about the book, Inconvenient Facts. Gregory Wrightstone will be my guest. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this Monday afternoon. Well, of course, the nation's um, attention was rightly focused on what happened in Santa Fe last week and that 10 people were killed and uh, dozens of others were injured when a teenager, a junior uh, student at the high school in Santa Fe, opened fire on classmates in an uh, an art class. Uh, And there's lots of uh, discussion about what should be done. How can we prevent these kinds of things from happening in the future? Well, schools are increasingly rely on uh, relying rather on private firms that are hired to provide around the clock monitoring of social media posts that has raised the ire of some civil libertarians saying, well, that may be a step too far. Um, school systems are, are hiring these private, private firms rather to conduct around-the-clock monitoring of students' social media posts, and their effort is to prevent the next mass shooting at a school. Now, that can be extremely helpful, but is this the right course to take? Well, the companies use special software and algorithms to sift through major social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and others, and they alert schools and law enforcement when the posts turn dark or violent. Now, it's not clear if the students give their consent or if families are aware that this is happening, but the mass monitoring of students is highly controversial among civil libertarians. It's been gaining currency since the December of 2012 shooting spree in Sandy Hook Elementary in Connecticut that left 28 dead, and certainly there have been many others since. In the February shooting that killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, uh, they have uh, lent new momentum to this effort, and school systems nationwide are now spending millions of dollars every year on firms that track students' postings and sound an alarm if potential violent messages are posted online. Well, a few uh, few weeks after the Parkland shooting, the Miami-Dade school system asked state officials for an additional $30 million to enhance their security. That request included funds for advanced monitoring of social media. Now, similar steps are being taken all around the country. In the Connecticut suburb, of Springsboro, Ohio, for example, the school district there announced a series of steps in February to enhance their security, and they cited safety lessons stemming from the shootings at Parkland. Uh, Parkland rather. One of those uh, changes included hiring a company to conduct continuous monitoring of students' social media activity. Well, a spokesman from the school, Scott uh, Marshall, uh, said that the system looks for a certain hints or clues, adding it's, um, if it's going to happen, they're usually on social media before. Beforehand. There were certainly clues in the case of alleged shooter Nicholas Cruz in Parkland. He posted a message on YouTube that discussed becoming a school shooter, but the FBI was apparently unable to trace the message back to the troubled former student. Glendale Public Schools north of Los Angeles in California was one of the first systems to hire an outside firm, GeoListening, it's called, to monitor students' social media posts in December back in 2013. Well, the Huffington Post reported Glendale's $40,000 contract with the firm involved 
involved monitoring the social media habits of some 13,000 students in high school and middle school. And the decision to hire the monitoring firm apparently came after a student who was a victim of bullying committed suicide by leaping off the roof of a local high school. Now, some school systems have opted to monitor social media in-house rather than contract out. In May of 2015, the Orange County School District in Orlando, they obtained software licenses from Snap Trends to monitor major social media outlets. One official remarked the system gives the district intelligence into a situation that could possibly prevent something more serious from happening. Now, the social media monitoring systems issue alerts when they detect certain keywords and combinations that could potentially indicate problems with issues such as cyberbullying, hate crimes, suicidal thoughts or despair, drug use, truancy, smartphone use during uh, classes and so on. Well, colleges and universities, K through 12 school systems and corporations, they've all shown an interest in social media monitoring. Surveys suggest that 85 percent of students between the ages of 13 and 17 have at least one social media account. To allay privacy concerns, the companies that conduct the monitoring emphasize that they are only harvesting information that has already been posted publicly. They're not hacking into private messages, chat groups or emails. But civil libertarians and many students and their parents see the issue quite differently. This is the government essentially hiring a contractor to stalk the social media of the kids. As one senior staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, privacy rights watchdog group, uh, it breeds an environment of distrust between youth and teachers and administrators, he went on to say. Um, and uh, there are far more eff- uh, efficacious ways of getting to the cause of the issues than spying on students. Well, the question is, are there more efficacious ways? And if so, what are they? Well, those privacy concerns may not fully be resolved until the inevitable court case or cases uh, work their way through the judicial system. In the meantime, school administrators increasingly feel forced to put their own students under surveillance in order to keep them safe. And it has been, in hindsight, looking back on social media of several of the more recent shooters, that it's uh, been learned that, in fact, there were indications uh, that this was a student that was troubled or perhaps was a danger or was likely to be a danger to others. In another story, in Hood River, a judge ordered a Vancouver teenager to pay $36.6 million in restitution after that teen pled guilty earlier this year to starting last September's massive Eagle Creek wildfire in the Columbia Gorge. $36.6 million. Well, the judge had initially delayed that decision during a hearing in Hood River on Thursday. That was the 17th after the teenager's defense attorney claimed that the state requiring full restitution was, in fact, unconstitutional when imposed on a juvenile. Well, the judge decided that the restitution requested in this case was in line with the seriousness of the offenses committed by the teenager. He said in a written ruling that the restitution scheme meets the juvenile delinquency goals of personal responsibility, accountability and reformation within the context of public safety. Well, the judge said the court finds that the teen is unable to pay the judgment if the court finds uh, to uh, unable to pay the judgment in full and authorized um, the Hood River Juvenile Department to establish a payment schedule. The judge said factors such as the teen's financial resources and other obligations will be taken into consideration when determining an appropriate payment plan. Well, as part of the ruling, the judge also said the court can grant a full or partial satisfaction of the restitution judgment after 10 years if the teen has successfully completed proba- uh, probation, doesn't commit additional offenses, and complies with the payment plan. Restitution was awarded to the Iris Schenk, 
$5,000. All state insurance, 8111 uh, 8, The Oregon State Parks, $31,551. $100,000 to Haker Properties, $168,000 to the Trail Club of Oregon, $1 million uh, to the Union Pacific Railroad, $1,600,000 to Oregon State Fire Marshal, $12 million to ODOT, 21 to uh, U.S. Forest Service um, uh, to the U.S. Forest Service. Well, the wildfire uh, burned more than 48,000 acres in the scenic Columbia Gorge in Mount Hood National Forest. A representative of the U.S. Forest Service said 121 miles of National Forest trails were impacted. A group of hikers had to be rescued after the fire started and several structures were also destroyed. According to a representative with the Oregon Department of Transportation, crews removed more than 12,000 trees to make the area safe. The fire that happened during the peak tourism season also had a negative impact on many businesses in the area. The boy was 15 years old when he started that fire in September of last year while igniting fireworks, according to Oregon State Police. He pled guilty in court in February and was sentenced to five years probation, 1,920 hours of community service with the U.S. Forest Service. And he wrote a letter saying, I sincerely apologize to everyone who had to deal with this fire. I cannot imagine how scary it must have been for you. Uh, I know I have to earn your forgiveness and I will work hard to do so. And one day I hope I will. The wildfire affected Hood River and Multnomah counties, but Oregon's juvenile code demands that legal proceedings take place in the county where the illegal act originally occurred. Fifteen years old and certainly ought to be a cautionary tale for other young people who are considering doing something extremely foolish. Well, in 1988, President Reagan used Title X regulations to prevent organizations that receive federal dollars from promoting or referring for abortions or from sharing physical space with abortion providers. After all, the 1970 law establishing Title X states none of the funds appropriated under this title shall be used in programs where abortion is a method of family planning. Nevertheless, abortion proponents sued. And though the Supreme Court ruled in Reagan's favor, the policy never actually went into effect because neither President Bush followed his lead, and naturally, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama opposed it. Well, President Trump, however, planned to resurrect that rule in an announcement that was made last week. Stand by for Planned Parenthood to sue in one two, three, if they haven't already done so. Well, Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion mill, kills more than 300,000 unborn babies every year, and it receives $500 million in taxpayer funding to do so. Of course, the organization insists that it's complying with federal law, preventing taxpayer dollars from being used directly for abortions. As uh, Yuval Levin explained in 2015, Planned Parenthood gets around the legal prohibition by formally separating its abortion clinics and its other family planning services, even when those are located in the same facility and essentially funded jointly. But let's be honest. Abortions are what Planned Parenthood does. Other health services are a mere fig leaf designed to obscure that fact. Pouring water in a shallow end of a pool is the same as pouring in the deep end. Given that Republicans are unified, uh, control in Washington have failed to defund Planned Parenthood as promised. The president's move is a welcome one, but does it go far enough? Well, the rule only affects $260 million in federal funding for contraception and other family planning services, of which Planned Parenthood receives part. The bulk of Planned Parenthood's federal funding comes from Medicaid and only legislation can stop it. Also, this proposal doesn't necessarily defund Planned Parenthood as long as they, they're willing to disentangle taxpayer funds from abortion as a method of family planning, which is required under Title X law. Well, Planned Parenthood has no shortage of private funds either, by the way. In other words, it seems that um, 
Uh, semantics and accounting gimmicks may still suffice. And contrary to the media's narrative on the left, this doesn't amount to sweeping new abortion restrictions. Even so, Trump has yet again acted where uh, congressional Republicans and two previous GOP presidents failed. Let's hope it leads to further action to stop funding mass slaughter. And by the way, on Wednesday, former Planned Parenthood President Cecil Richards was presented with the Hubert H. Humphrey Civil and Human Rights Award by Uh, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Just a reminder that she oversaw the demise of some 3.5 million babies in her 12-year tenure, for which she has received a reward and recognition. Hmm. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Gregory Wrightstone. He's the author of Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Stick around. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, there's lots of confusion and misinformation on climate science. But if you're looking for a great resource, we're going to talk about one in just a moment. It's a concise yet comprehensive and eminently readable lay guide to real climate science. And geologist Gregory Wrightstone's Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, Uh, will not only meet your expectations, but will exceed them. It's 123 pages. They're organized in two sections and 30 easily understood chapters written in plain English and complemented by over 100 colorful charts, graphs, tables, and illustrations that cover all the common climate issues, fears, as well as myths. The book is capped off by a handy list of 60 inconvenient facts that eviscerate alarmist dogma and 15 pages of references. As Lord Christopher Monckton says in his foreword to the book, Wrightstone has succeeded splendidly in reliably distinguishing myths from realities in the climate debate. Well, Gregory Wrightstone is a geologist with more than 35 years uh, spent investigating rather the earth and its processes. He received his undergraduate degree from Waynesburg University and his master's in geology from West Virginia University. He is a strong proponent of the scientific process and often refers to a basic tenet of English law, let both sides be fairly heard, something that is rarely done in the climate debate these days. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I, I so appreciate your taking the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And we might want to ma- mention, too, I'm a contributing writer for your friend uh, uh, Calvin Beisner yes. at the Cornwall Alliance. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, he's uh, the one who turned me on to the book. I'm so grateful for that. Um, the opening section of your book devotes 54 pages to explaining greenhouse and climate basics. Now, lots of uh, our younger listeners went through school being taught on these very things. How how far off is what we generally think we understand from what is actually factual with regard to those issues? Yeah, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in a lot of what we're being told, and that's that's the danger there. Uh, what the, the the problem becomes in what's emphasized, what's ignored, uh, and and how the data is portrayed. If if the time periods are cherry picked. If the if we don't look at and put everything in the larger context of of CO2 temperature and and uh, 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 climate change and, and the greenhouse effect, uh, you can skew the perception of this. And, and part of that, we hear that carbon dioxide, of course, is is this dangerous. We're, we're dangerously high levels. We've increased 130 parts per million since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, just to give a good example. But yet, if we look throughout the history of the Earth, we know that carbon dioxide levels 
uh, averaged 2,600 parts per million during Earth's lifetime. And that's six, more than six times as much what our current levels are. So, you know, the Earth and the ecosystems throughout time have benefited greatly from, from carbon dioxide. And, and uh, we often see, even, even at very high levels, we saw ice ages at levels 10 times, eight times what they are today. So it's a matter of perception and, and how, you, how you assess and, and portray the data. We're being told now that we are approaching or have already arrived at a tipping point. But in your book, you analyze climate models versus real-world measurements uh, of global oh. temperature, which is, is significant to understand the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really important. That's a big takeaway in the book. I, I live in the real world, and I, I looked in, and I look at what was actually, what's actually happening today. I look at the historical record of what's been happening in the last hundred or so years and what's happening today. And what we see is the, are the things that we're being told are going to be horrible related to climate change. You know what they are, droughts increasing, fires increasing, heat waves, intense heat waves increasing. And you look at what actually is happening, we see them in decline. Forest fires are a great example. We see that forest fires have been a, a, a hundred plus year decline. And the experts, and this is the Canadian Fire Service, in the counterparts in the United States, uh, the National Interagency Service, uh, the experts there attribute the decline in fires to climate change. They attribute it to warming temperatures and CO2 fertilization effect. The warming, and, and those two combined are leading to a, uh, a worldwide soil moisture content increase. And that's huge because it's, it's leading uh, to an earth that's prospering that's greening, that's thriving and flourishing. And that's completely different from what many of your listeners have ever heard. So mm-hmm. we've got, that's a huge, huge, huge good story. And that's really what put Calvin Beisner uh, and me together. He said, your book just so well just buttresses our, 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 our main philosophy, which is that we should use all of God's resources uh, to the betterment of mankind and do it being good stewards. We want to do it responsibly. Yeah, yeah. And this book just backs that up. Let's talk about the phrase climate change. It replaced global warming. And I suppose one missing word when we're talking about uh, the climate hysteria is catastrophic climate change. Um, If you say, I don't believe in climate change, is that somewhat misleading because the climate does change? But catastrophic climate change is really what um, what's at issue here? Well, it is catastrophic climate change, but the big issue, is it human-driven or is it naturally mm-hmm, driven? Mm-hmm. Climates are changing. Climates, the one thing I say about temperature, the only thing constant about it is, is that it's never constant. Man, temperature, you look at whatever time scale you want. Temperature's going up and down and up and down and up and down. So uh, we look at that and we know that these natural forces, mainly solar, but there's some other things, big things in play, uh, have been driving temperatures since the dawn of time. And those same natural forces that have been driving temperatures, they didn't stop at the beginning of the 20th century. That's what Dr. Michael Mann and Al Gore and the rest of these climate alarmists want you to believe. They want you to believe that the forces driving temperatures since the dawn of time, suddenly they've ceased. And now temperature and climate's being driven nearly entirely with human actions. And, and you know that's not so. Your listeners know that's not so. Uh, it's, it's just not the way nature works. 
Let's talk about two other elements that you cover in the first half of your book. One is greenhouse gases and the other is temperature. Let's start with greenhouse gases because that is a phrase that we may not really understand, but we're being told that that is the main driver of the catastrophe that lay ahead. Yeah, let's let's start with that. Uh, You've heard of the 97% consensus, of Mm -hmm. course, everybody Mm -hmm. has. Uh, John Cook was the uh, author of the study that was referenced there. In his uh, study, I would be part of the 97% consensus because I believe that we're increasing CO2. It's a proven fact, and it's mainly from burning of fossil fuels, number one. Number two, it is a greenhouse gas. The increase in CO2 has to have some warming effect on the atmosphere. It just does. To deny that is denying basic science. It does. I would argue that it's fairly modest and greatly overwhelmed by the natural forces, like we've said, have been driving temperature uh, forever. Um, So those, those, I would be considered, in his estimation, part of that 97%. And if also, if you look, the the main contention the alarmists will make is that carbon dioxide is the primary greenhouse gas. And I I think you know that's not true. Mm -hmm. You know that the primary greenhouse gas is water vapor by a lot. Water vapor accounts for almost 90, in the book I say 90%, depending on the, on the water vapor, it could be 95, it might be 65, depending on what the percentage is at any one time. But uh, if, you, if you would Google greenhouse gases or go to the National Geographic site, you'll see a pie chart that doesn't have water vapor even represented. So what they're trying to do is overemphasize the warming effect of carbon dioxide and to make it look even worse. And then link that, like you say, to these catastrophic events. And, and again, the, the overall theme of the book, I think, really, it took Calvin to really wrap me up the side of the head to, to make me realize <laughs> what this overarching theme was. And it was because I think I was too close to the book when I was writing. But the overarching theme is that rising temperatures and increasing CO2 are lead, leading to a prospering, thriving Earth and a prospering of humanity. And that's a really, really, really good untold story. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, temperature. And as you, uh, in the subtitle of that section of the book, A Question of Degree. Uh, Mm -hmm. Global warming, of course, was the phrase of choice not long ago uh, that we were all going to be sizzling um, in catastrophic ways in the not-too-distant future. You've touched on it a little bit, but just comment uh, a bit specifically on temperature. Well, we know that we're in, a, we're in a warming period. We know that through measurements of data. We know through his thousands of historical records. We know that uh, the warming trend that we're in right now, we know what year it started. It was the year 1695. It was the worst depths of the Little Ice Age. It was called the Maunder Minimum. It was really cold and really bad. During the Little Ice Age, half the population of Iceland perished. 600,000 people perished in one year in France. It was bad. Uh, And we see that throughout time. Uh, Cold periods lead to famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. Uh, So we started warming in the year 1695, long before man could have had any influence on any warming of the planet. And actually, for the next 40 years, we had multiple times the rate of warming that we see in the 20th century. Again, naturally driven, 100% naturally driven. Um, And so we've been in a 300-plus year uh, increase in temperature. Uh, I mean, for crying out loud, the, the Thames River froze on an annual basis, and that hasn't happened since 1812. 
to give you an idea of the warming we're seeing. And so we're thankfully coming out of that little ice age and warming. And again, it's having uh, a great benefit to us. Uh, and we can see, too, uh, the past warming uh, periods that we're in, they also were related. I love the relationship in the book that I do between warm, warmth and cold and the rise and fall of civilizations. And it happened time and time again, where great civilizations rise up during the warm periods because they can feed everybody. And people have time to, to think, to tinker, to dream, to sculpt. And then it got cold, crop failure, famine, pestilence, nasty population. And that's why it was called the cold age period. It was called the Greek Dark Ages or the Dark Ages and then the horrific Little Ice Age. So there's, there's a great correlation there. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking with Gregory Wrightstone. He is the author of Inconvenient Facts, the Science that Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. It's a great book. As I mentioned, it's about 123 pages, eminently readable, very informative to help us better understand what's actually happening based on scientific method. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Gregory Wrightstone. He is the author of Inconvenient Facts, the Science that Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know, and the book is published by Silver Crown. Uh, The book is uh, divided into two halves, and the second half um, you deal with uh, the catastrophic predictions that are, are uh, we are told are uh, imminent. Uh, you examine the assertions, the myths of a coming climate uh, apocalypse. You demonstrate why they fail to meet basic standards of scientific evidence and integrity. In fact, those who are referred to as climate deniers are accused of uh, doing precisely what it seems uh, those who are um, uh, preaching an apocalypse are doing, and that is uh, failing to meet the basic standards of scientific evidence and integrity. Talk a bit about the second half of the book and some of these uh, catastrophes that we are uh, being warned uh, are upon us unless we make dramatic shifts in what we uh, what we do. Well, again, these things that we we look at, like forest fires, uh, polar bears going extinct, uh, ocean acidification, things like that, the heat waves, intense heat waves, droughts. I look in the book and I take a look at actually what's happening, and see we see with droughts, intense heat waves, uh, forest fires. Again, like we mentioned before, at the first half of the show, they're in decline. We're told that these things will increase and get worse. And it seems what we, what we see, and one of the big factors is an important thing for you and your listeners to, to understand, is that increasing soil moisture has been going on, and it's led by uh, increased precipitation due to higher water vapor because the more warmer temperatures means more water vapor in the atmosphere, which leads to more precipitation. And then that's turbocharged by the CO2 fertilization effect. And the CO2 fertilization effects means that the pores in the plants are smaller. They're not what we call transpiring or breathing as in and out as much, so they're not losing wa- as nearly as much water and don't need as much water. So, again, the, the, the moisture stays in the ground instead of getting sucked out. Those things working in tandem are leading to increases in soil moisture around the world and a greening of the planet. So that that increased soil moisture dampens fires, alleviates intense heat waves, and uh, softens and and makes droughts uh, less common. And we see a 
if we look at the most intense heat waves of the 20th century, there were 30 of them. Uh, we look at them in 20-year blocks. Uh, there were only three in the last 20 years. Uh, we saw a great decrease in the, in, the, in the worst of the droughts. And again, forest fires are worldwide decreasing. And again, the fire experts say it's because of increase in soil moisture. And I'll tell you, the, the, a great example is in the Sahara Desert. Uh, and your, your listeners, they're probably in front of a computer or will be soon or use their smartphone. If they would just Google NASA greening and Sahara and see what they get, because they might be saying, oh, Greg, you're, you're full of it. I don't believe you. NASA greening and Sahara. And you'll see what NASA says. What we're finding is in the southern Sahara. It's called the Sahel. It's turning into a lush grassland. 300,000 square kilometers of the southern Sahara are turning into lush grassland. People are moving back into that area they haven't lived in over a thousand years. Animals are moving back in there, gazelles, even amphibians, into this area. And we see NASA, there's us, or you can also look at some of the other NASA reports, India and Australia. What's what it's called greening. It's the greening of the planet, and it's due to increased vegetation. And it's increasing vegetation due to soil moisture increase and CO2 fertilization effect. That's turbocharging plant growth. And what that does, it leads to greater crop growth. We're going to be able to, it's a huge, huge story. We're going to be able to feed the planet because of, of CO2 fertilization and, and this increased soil moisture. And again, that's a good story. It's really, it really hasn't gone reported at all. Probably many of your listeners have never heard mm-hmm. such a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all they've heard are the negatives of CO2. I just did an op-ed last week. A uh, couple of them. First one was, how green is my planet? How how uh, in, uh, rising temperatures and increasing CO2 are benefiting Earth and humanity, which is a great story. And then the second op-ed I just did this week was, uh, I love carbon dioxide and so should you. So head, after those two heads were exploding over on the <laughs> alarmist uh, Facebook pages, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not welcome there. But that's all right. <laughs> well, you're welcome here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you write about um, an off-sided study that ignores a full century of readily available data and uses computer models to fill in the contrived gaps in pH ah. levels, talking about uh, ocean acidification. Talk a little bit about that as an example of how we are misled and how computer models um, are used to provide us with answers to, to questions that m- maybe... We shouldn't be asked. I don't know. Um, talk a bit about it. Yeah. If you recall, I, we started off this today about me, me saying that I uh, I didn't set out to write a book. I set out to seek the truth, mm-hmm. okay, because I knew that some of the things we're being told were just incorrect. And ocean acidification, which is what you're referencing, is one of those things. Uh, the oceans are not acidifying. We've had about a tenth of a pH drop uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, from about 8.1 to about 8.0. Recall from uh, way back in your dim past, go to your laboratory, or that you may recall that uh, neutral acidity or neutral is 7.0. Uh, 8.0 is still very alkaline, and it will stay so. The oceans uh, only in one event for a fairly short period of time since since the Precambrian period have the oceans ever been acidic, and that was due to something completely different. Uh, even the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, doesn't allege that the oceans will become acidic. But that's, that's the big hobgoblin of alarm that we're, 
were being used that um, the entire ocean ecosystems will collapse because of ocean acidification. A better way to describe it would be, be to say that the oceans have become slightly less caustic. But that doesn't strike fear in your heart. That actually makes it sound good. And that's not what they want. So th- this, was, this was the primary thing that got me interested because I knew oceans had not been acidified before, even at levels 10 and 15 times uh, our current rates. If it didn't happen then, they weren't, it's not going to happen now. One of the things that you write is that scientists still don't understand the complexities of climate and weather. They still can't separate human influences from the effects of powerful natural forces that have brought profound climate changes throughout history, and that there's uh, no evidence of a coming uh, climate uh, cataclysm. How much do we really know um, as contrasted to what we're being told is absolute fact and that there's a 97% consensus to back it up. Yeah, well, there's, we mentioned before about I live in the real world rather than mm-hmm. see what's actually happening compared to uh, if we look at these climate apocalypse, these are predictions. That's exactly what they are, the predictions. The predictions based on climate models that can't actually measure climate very well at all. Uh, John Christie and his testimony before Congress uh, in 2016, uh, you can you can Google that, and you can find out that that his uh, laboratory analysis and his his climate model runs of a hundred climate model runs showed, and then compared against what actually happened, show that the models overpredict warming two and a half to three times too much. So they start with a flawed model, and then they 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 make a a prediction of what might happen 30, 50, or 80 years in the future. Uh, they don't look at what's happening today. Uh, so I, I, I think it's important for us. We need to be able to separate speculation based on failed climate models from what's actually happening. And what's actually happening, again, is a flourishing earth, a prospering earth. Good things are happening. And uh, that instead of, like, again, we don't want to be relying on speculation of, of decades into the future, what may or may not, not happen uh, based on turbocharged uh, climate models, just not right. What do you and hope? We also, oh, go ahead. Please go ahead. Yeah, well, we also we also talked about the ninety seven percent consensus, mm-hmm. and and I, again we referenced John Cook's work where he would include me in that. So he, he cast a very broad net, and uh, I, I spent an entire chapter in the book dispelling that notion quite quite adequately. I think there. Now, your book is written for the lay reader. It's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's eminently readable. What do you hope uh, readers of Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, uh, will come away with once they've read what science actually tells us and what um, we don't have to be fearful about? Yeah. Well, I want to empower your listeners. I want to empower. That's why I wrote the book. I wanted, I did it to reach, to, to reach the non-scientists, but in order to empower your, your listeners, I want to provide to them a PowerPoint of the top 25 figures in the book for their use. And that way, uh, if their idiot brother from Chicago or brother-in-law or whoever posts something about polar bears going extinct, they can go, oh, look, here's 60-year population history of polar bears. It's not actually happening, Dave. And so I want to empower them with that. They can go to my website, uh, inconvenientfacts.com. Dot XYZ and hit the subscribe button. They don't have to buy anything. Inconvenientfacts.xyz, and I'll send them a link uh, to, to a PowerPoint of the top 25 figures in the book. And they, they're, 
I would encourage them to use them. They can easily convert them to JPEGs for use on social media. Uh, but I, I've gotten a great response from people. Uh, and I've, I go on, uh, on these various Facebook sites, and, and I see people posting uh, figures from the book. And uh, I just asked them to, to retain all the source and reference information. Yeah. Yeah. It's power, powerful material. Um, without, you know, it allows them to actually uh, use what's in the book when they're conversing with people. Well, this is a great resource, and I would encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. Again, the book is titled Inconvenient Facts, The Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. Gregory Wrightstone, thanks so much for talking with us. You betcha. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it very much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we learned last week that Merrill Hurst University is closing its doors after 125 years of operation. It was a small Catholic university, unincorporated Clackamas County near Lake Oswego. That's where it was located. And they say that declining enrollment led to the board's decision to shutter um, uh, Merrill Hurst University. While this decision is sad and difficult for everyone involved, we feel it's the best decision for students, faculty, and staff, and our entire community. That's a quote from uh, Chip Terhune, who's the chair-elect of the Merrill Hurst University Board of Trustees. Had to have been a difficult decision to make. Merrill Hurst announced the closure on Thursday. The school said it's going to work with current students to either graduate by the end of the summer term or transfer to another institution. Eighty-one students could uh, complete their degrees by the summer, the university said in a press release. Another 324 will remain and need to transfer elsewhere, which, of course, they've uh, said they'll help. Uh, facilitate. As our students and faculty process this news, we remain committed to providing support to help them move forward with pursuing their educational and career goals. Our goal is to assist our entire community in finding a safe landing in whatever their educational or professional future holds. Again, that's from the Merrill Hurst University president, Melody Rose. Merrill Hurst saw a pretty significant drop in their enrollment that followed the Great Recession, a hurdle the uh, school said many other small private colleges are grappling with as well. The school's enrollment dropped by almost 50% in four years from 1,400 in the fall of 2013-2014 to 743 2017-2018 academic year. Those numbers were expected to drop even more next year. So the school said it had... uh, Uh, issues with accreditation, recalled loans or negative uh, audits. Tuition and fees at Merrill Hurst were about $20,000, for the 2016-2017 school year, according to U.S. News and World Report. 71% of the student body was female, uh, and the acceptance rate was 100%. The prime real estate where the school's located will be returned to its last owners, the Sisters of uh, Holy Names. They're going to use the property in alignment with their mission and values, according to the school. But Merrill Hurst University will no longer be a part of the landscape of uh, the Pacific Northwest. And again, they will continue through the um, end of the academic year. And I believe that includes summer, uh, but then it will be no more. Taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week, looking forward to a couple of things. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Adam Davis, who is the author of Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement. And I would encourage you, if you're not in law enforcement or don't know someone personally, you might want to consider this as a resource to pass along to a law enforcement officer you may come in contact with along the way, whether that's, you know, pulled you over for a ticket or you just happen to find a group of them in Starbucks, this might be a great way to encourage 
uh, those who serve. They are among the first responders in our community. We're going to talk with Adam Davis about the challenge of wearing that badge and uh, the value of this resource. Again, behind the badge, 365 daily devotions for law enforcement. On Wednesday, Food for the Poor is going to join me in studio, and we're looking forward to the guys coming back and bringing us the latest on Haiti. Uh, they've just returned. In fact, uh, Crystal, who hosts uh, the afternoon show on our sister station, The Fish, has also uh, returned, having traveled with them. We're going to try to get her in studio as well to give us an update on her observations while there. And, of course, we're going to have an opportunity to support the uh, the needy in Haiti during this radiothon. So let me encourage you now to just begin to think about and pray, you know, Lord, would you have me be a part of Uh, helping in Haiti. So that's coming up on Wednesday. On Thursday, Leslie Fields will be my guest. She's the author of The Wonder Years. We'd actually had her scheduled a week or two ago, and we have rescheduled her. So I'm looking forward to that. The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. So looking forward to uh, that on Thursday. And then on uh, Friday, we're going to lighten up, assuming uh, there are no big breaking news stories. But if there is breaking news, we'll certainly break in and uh, and share that uh, with you as well. So that's our lineup for this uh, this next week. Um, and we'll continue to follow some of the developing stories we brought up earlier today as part of our um, our conversation in what's um, what's going on. Um, let's see a couple of things. I mentioned that the 17 year old shooter uh, in Santa F- uh, Santa Fe uh, may have had specific targets in mind, we are told. And Susan Wright, in commenting on this latest event, which sadly involves uh, high school students, young people, she points out that we need to be teaching our children how to handle disappointment. We need to be instilling grace, humility, caring, and a reverent fear of God in our children. To be fair, I don't know the family background of the Santa Fe shooter yet. I don't... Um, I don't know how he was raised. The truth is sometimes the parents can do everything exactly right, but their kids still stray. Uh, that being said, it's, uh, it's too easy for the world to get settled into the spirit of impressionable youth and lead them in, in the exact wrong direction. She points out that something got to this young man. What we're hearing now is that when he opened fire in an art class, killing nine other students and a teacher, he had targets in mind. He Uh, singled out that class. He singled out apparently certain students. In particular, he sought out those he didn't like. One mother is saying the 17-year-old assassin targeted her daughter, Shanna Fisher, because she had repeatedly turned down his advances. Uh, Fisher's mother, Sadie Rodriguez, told the Times in a private message to the paper's Facebook page that the suspect gave her daughter four months of problems before Fisher rejected him in front of classmates. A week later, he opens fire on everyone he didn't like, she wrote to the newspaper, Shanna being the first. She didn't say how she knew her daughter was uh, shot first or how uh, she may have known that certain students were targeted, but it may be from reports uh, of those students who were inside when the shooting began, and of course those students being familiar with Uh, relationships among their fellow classmates. Today, law enforcement aren't really giving out those kinds of details. But what we do know is that he was only a junior and a student at that school. He used a shotgun and a 38 revolver taken from his father in the attack. He also threw pipe bombs into some classrooms, according to witnesses. Explosive devices were found around the school, including a pressure cooker with an explosive device inside, reminiscent, of course, of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. Representative Randy Weber, who represents 
Democrats, the Santa Fe area in Congress, gave a statement of comfort, vowing that they would work together to recover from the tragedy. This is the second time in eight months that we've gone through tragedy, he said, according to the Times. We will pull together, he said. We will grieve together. We will love one another. We'll work together. We did it after Harvey, still doing it after Harvey. We'll do it uh, after this. Well, at this point, it's the best anyone can do. There aren't going to be any answers that ease the pain of loss. It's going to take a community drawing closer and being a support to those who need a place to turn when they feel broken. But she certainly makes a good point when uh, she says that we need to be instilling grace, humility, caring, and a reverent fear of God in our kids, and certainly to be praying for them. I know that there are groups of moms in particular, but certainly others as well, who commit to praying for uh, their school, praying for the teachers and administrators overseeing the school, the, the uh, students and so on. And uh, we would do well to do that as, as well. It may not be that you're part of an organized group, but if you live close to or in the neighborhood of a local school, and virtually all of us do, uh, we might set ourselves to praying specifically for um, that locale. Certainly, there's much more that needs to be done as well in terms of public policy and school safety. But we can begin to channel our grief and frustration and sadness uh, by constructively lifting up those um, who attend schools in our area. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Adam Davis, Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement, who, by the way, are the first to be called upon when incidents like this occur. We need to pray, be praying for them as well. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.